come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome listeners to Journey with a Cinephile Presents, bonus episode number 21 as I do literary review number 4. So this one here, I've had a few more books that were sent over to me that I haven't had a chance to read, so I finally got around to knocking both of those out. So there's going to be two covered here. The first book is an interesting text covering Vampires in the Silent Screen, Cinema's First Age of Vampires. This is going from... Works that were done from 1897 to 1922 as it's ending out with Nosferatu, which was actually considered to be the first vampire film, but there's some evidence that might be that there's some lost films that could also have a run there. Then I also got to jump into the series from Emmanuel C. Lachlan, which I got to read the third book in that series now, as I've actually read the first book of Oculus before. But the other book that I'm having on here is Dohecadedron, The Story of the Second Stone. So there's not anything else I need to do here for this intro, so what I will say is let me get you over to a very brief break before I get into these literary reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first book review here on this literary review is going to be Vampires on the Silent Screen Cinema's First Age of Vampires, 1897-1922. This was released in 2023. The author was David Anwen Jones. And let me go ahead and read a little bit here about what we have as the Vampires in the Silent Scream is a must-read for horror enthusiasts trying to find out more about vampires in film. This book provides a unique insight into the iconography of vampires in silent cinema, presenting a detailed, academic, yet accessible discussion of the films and their sources, and reconfiguring the history of horror cinema from the first ever filmic female vampire to a Dracula lookalike in cinema's original vampire, this book discusses them all. It also includes the author's discovery of vampire magic lantern slides and uncovers prior vampire films whose roots all go back to the First World War. 
So this author here also has done Gothic Machine from 2011, Sexuality and the Gothic Magic Lantern from 2014, Gothic Effigy from 2018, Reinvisiting the First Age of Cinematic Horror 2018, and Green Trends in Euro Horror Films from the 1960s and 70s in Palgrave Handbook of Contemporary Gothic from 2020, The Art of Gathly Projections from 2021, and the in Palgrave Handbook of Gothic Origins, and Cinematic Darkness in the Palgrave Handbook of Steam Age Gothic from 2020 as well. So this was one that I was excited when Juliet from Spring Nature reached out. I was given the opportunity to read a critic's copy. Now this made me excited since the basis of my podcast journey with a cinephile is to watch older films along with new things. I look on myself as a historian of sorts so this was in my wheelhouse. Funny story was that by the time I went to read this my link expired so I had to get it re-upped. There was a fear there that I would lose the chance but thanks to Juliet for saving the day on that. So I'm going to warn you ahead of getting into this that this is done in like an academic textbook style. There is a wealth of information and there are references cited here. This is a type of book that I wish I had the time to write because having the time to do research as a full-time job would be my dream. And I'll digress there though because I don't want to take away from this book. So this is given the history of vampires through folklore and how this isn't one that has specific mythology for it. Literature from Bram Stoker's Dracula and films built what we know today. Jones explores movies like F.W. Murnau's unauthorized version of Stoker's novel with Nosferatu. It is commonly referred to as the first, but that necessarily isn't the case. Early movies were lost, so that's partially why Nosferatu takes this honor. It is also a great movie, so there's that. Now, what I was saying is that Jones lays out how the term vampire was used, but not automatically in the way that we think. Now, I'm not going to go too much into detail since I want you to read this and avoid spoiling it, but there are crime movies that refer to thieves as vampires. This makes sense since they're living off the wealth of the others. Early vampires are also associated with fire spirits like in the Mysteries of Myra, but not necessarily in the way that we would think. Alchemy could also be the result in a vampire entity like we get in Magic from 1917. There's another movie that gets explored with Lilith and Lai from 1919 where we have a blood demon and science. This isn't too different from the Gollum from what I remember reading about here. Then there's one that I've searched out before realizing that it was lost in Dracula Halala or Dracula's Death. This one seems to share concepts with one of my favorite movies of all time in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari while also using aspects of Bram Stoker's novel. There's also counterfeit films that are considered like a movie that I've seen called Genuine. I also believe this has the subtitle as The Tragedy of the Vampire, but I actually thought at the time of watching that one, I was like, this doesn't seem like a vampire. And this textbook here or this book actually kind of gives as to why and some of the things that it's doing. This then goes into what is considered the first vampire movie that can be found as well, which if you haven't guessed, is Nosferatu. So what I'll say here, there's a lot of information given. It's quite interesting if you like the history of cinema. This can get you lost though if you aren't willing to go back as far into your viewing, so you might not get as much out of it as I did. Maybe you're just interested in learning about the great cinematic creatures, so that could be something that I would say be to check this out. So I highly recommend this if you're looking for an academic approach and this exploration of this subgenre of horror. So my rating here for Vampires on the silent screen is going to be an 8 out of 10. This also should be available now. I was actually looking at the press email that I got for this one and it does look like that they have some of the pricing here. It looks like the hardcover is actually 119.99 pounds. 
it looks like there's also some other prices. I see $129.99 if you were looking for this in the United States. There's also an ebook that is £199. There's also or it's also $119 if you're looking for that one. There's so much in here. There's a bunch of references, a whole lot of information as well. So if what I'm saying interests you, give this one a read if you can find it, as I would recommend that. And for my second book that I'm going to be reviewing here on this episode is going to be Dota Hecadron. I think that's how you say that. The Story of the Second Stone. This is from 2023 and it was written by Emmanuel C. Lachlan. So before I get into the book, let me just go ahead and give you a little bit of background about him. But he is based in Godalming, Surrey, England and has written stories and poems for many years. He began formal training in creative writing in 2015. He favors micro and flash fiction of 50 to 500 words and his themes are frequently Kafka-esque and often feature the individual against them and the system and has had several pieces published. His tutor suggested he expand a short piece that he involved into the first book, Oculus series, The Story of the Twelfth Stone. His current project is Taurus, The Story of the Tenth Stone. When not writing, Emmanuel composes music for choirs and explores philosophy and mathematics. So then for this book here is the third book of the Oculus series and is set billions of years after the events recorded in Oculus, the story of the 12th stone is an epic fantasy adventure aimed at age 14 and upwards. And I actually realized that I'm going to share that here, but the third book is this one here. The second book being Mobius, the story of the eighth stone, which I have not read as of yet, but let me go ahead and get into this one and some other things as well. This is the one I got the chance to read via critical copy. Thanks to the writer. I read the first book in the series and there was a bit of time between starting to read this and when this was sent over to me that I forgot that there was a book in between and so I had actually read one and three. So what I like here is that since I haven't read book two, it didn't affect me in enjoying this one. I'm guessing there are elements that would help the overall story, which is how you should do if you're going to do something like this. So my plan is to go back now, but you can just jump in and read this as a standalone, which I appreciate. So. For the synopsis here, this is going to be a long one. On the planet Lemtor, following the 10,000-year religious wars, Tanum, a studious yet strong-minded boy of 17, together with thousands of others, lives in a vast protective dome. Inside the dome is strictly controlled by the elders who claimed the outside is still poisonous. On his 17th birthday, Tanum finds a mislaid access ring to the forbidden section of the library. In there, he finds and reads banned books, but enforcers catch him. And as punishment, the elders banish him from the sphere just with a survival rucksack. While trekking through an ancient railway tunnel, he discovers a glassy black oval-shaped stone with a dodahecadedron carved on one face. Once through the tunnel, a friendly alien shapeshifter, Kessel, confronts Tanum saying that he is searching for the Dohecadedron stone for trillions of years. He explains evil shapeshifters to Kim Mori, stole and hid the stone, and will know he has been it's been discovered. He warns Tenem that Kim Mori will soon invade and they will try to take the stone from him by force, and then he will die. Cassiel also reveals that there are others, actually, in fact, millions of domes, and outside is no longer poisonous. Meanwhile, Tanum's younger brother, Shaikh, has escaped from the dome and caught up with his older brother. While Castell is leading the boys to a larger and friendlier dome, he reveals that Dohecadedron is the first to be found of 13 special stones that form the Master Circle, and he must retrieve all 13 before the Kim Mori reestablish the Master Circle under their control, subjugating all universes. Tanum willingly offers Dohecadedron to Castell, 
but discovers he cannot take it and must return to his universe to find out why. Civil war between the Dome alliances erupts, so after reaching the next dome, Tanum and Shike start to train as warriors, not only to protect the dome, but also to keep Dohekadedron safe until Kassil can retrieve it. Tanum trains in explosives, and Shike trains in espionage but during their training they both fall in love with their military trainer georgian which apart from causing animosity between them risks the safety of their new dome and each other because of his spine enforcers from the old dome kidnap shike and incarcerate him in a tiny cell although explicitly forbidden tanum along with georgian sets off to rescue him can tanum and georgian successfully rescue shike can tanum keep dohecadedron safe until Cassel solves the problem of retrieving it is it possible for Tanum and Shike to resolve their differences over Georgian? And will the Kim Mori invasion change everything anyway? Dohekadedron is huge in scope and deep in emotion and takes the reader into alternate universes, dramatic battles, difficult relationships, and lasting friendships. Now, this is an extended synopsis, so I'll dive right into my thoughts. Where I want to start is that I love how well our writer, Lachlan, can develop universes. This one is different from what I read in Oculus and the other ones that we kind of explore in that book. Going farther, I also enjoyed this one a bit more since I settled in almost at once, where that first book, it took me a bit. To me, it feels like it is being assumed that you read that first one, but it doesn't require it. This helps to fill in the backstory or enough of what you need to know about why Cassell is searching for the stones and what the end game is there. What is also good is that we get a bit of the Kim Mori, but since we are early into this new war, they're secondary players. What is also good here is that we're getting a war that isn't too difficult from what we'd find on Earth, just with science fiction elements mixed in. There are missiles, bows and arrows, knives, and other similar weapons. We also have domes that function as force fields and futuristic guns. There is espionage and kidnapping to figure out information. We also get the concept of double or even a triple agent. This aspect helped to build tension for me. What also leads to difficult relationships as well. Shike is such a great character here as he wants to help his brother Tanum, so he flees his dome, and that's just a sort of an ordeal for him. I wanted to introduce that before we get more into it, he falls for Georgian, but she does fall for him as well as his brother. She was matched with him, so that complicates it, and that would be with Shike. Even more than that, though, this younger brother gets kidnapped, so she worries about him. They're apart, so it makes her want him more. He is hardened from when he comes back from the torture at the hands of the Kim Mori. He also becomes secretive as he must figure out if he is spying for them or is for his new friends. This also requires a tightrope for staying alive. The writing here is good in bringing all these characters to life. There's also Bento Tor, who I haven't even brought up. He gets close with Tannen, who, when tragedy strikes all around him, taking his twin sister and his lover, Cassell is interesting to me as well. He plays a smaller role here, and there's just something about how he talks and does things, and I never fully trust him. I don't know if it's just because I, you know, what I kind of bring in from personal stuff from books and movies that I've seen, he seems like he's out to help, but there's just something off. There's also Georgen, who creates a love triangle between these brothers. She is slightly annoying to me, as it feels like she wants her cake and eat it too. This does help with building tension. So what I'll say then is I feel a bit old as a reader here for the story that we're getting. I do think that this would be much more interesting for 14 year olds and up. The elements of this coming of age and we also have teens dealing with things that are much heavier than they should. I think that would help those readers who are dealing with things earlier than they should. This is well written. I flew through it and it was hard to stop at times. I think that I prefer the original one once I got into it. This helps to fill in more of that story. And one gripe though is it ended a bit too abruptly for my liking. I don't want that to dissuade you from reading this as it sounds interesting as it's worth it in my opinion. 
So my rating here for Decahodedron is going to be a 7 out of 10. And from everything that I'm seeing, this book should be available if you would like to check this out. So I would just say go ahead and check out anywhere books are that you rent them or want to buy a hard copy or anything like that. Just keep an eye out. Check it out there as it should be available from everything that I'm seeing. So I'm not going to do a full outro here. So I would say both these books are quite interesting. I would say give them both a read. They are much different as one is, you know, kind of more like a textbook into horror movies where this one's more of a kind of coming of age fantasy novel, but both of them I did enjoy thoroughly. So what I will say then is whatever you do today, hope you're safe and do it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.